You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. It's wonderful to have Ivy Zellman joining me today to dive into the insightful data that Ivy and her team at Zellman and Associates collect, analyze, and distribute on a regular basis. If you do not subscribe to Ivy's research and you are in the housing industry, I would strongly suggest you visit the Zellman website where you can not only subscribe, but also purchase individual research reports. I'm not going to provide my normal introductory remarks today about what we see happening in the markets at Walker & Dunlop because this discussion with Ivy is going to dive into the data and perspectives in a big way. So Ivy, first of all, it is wonderful to have you with me. Before I wind back the clock a little bit to your story and how you came to be such an insightful and influential voice in the housing industry, I have a two-part question. If you had a million dollars to invest today, first, what housing asset class single-family, single-family rental, or multifamily would you invest it in? And then second, what city or suburb would that asset be located in? Good question. I would actually invest in single-family rental. I think having a cash-flowing asset is the most beneficiary, uh, long-term wealth creation. If you look at the fastest-growing markets, there's a lot of competition in those markets. So I think I would take a hybrid approach. I think I would start in my hometown here in Cleveland, Ohio. Many of the institutional investors have actually not wanted to come to the Midwest, which are slow growth markets, but the yields are incredible here. But I'd probably allocate money to the Midwest and Cleveland and other markets in the Midwest. But I'd also look at probably only one or two. A million dollars doesn't go too far. In Cleveland, it goes pretty far. But I'd actually look at Boise. Idaho is one of the fastest growing states and Boise's on fire. And I don't think the single family rental institutional guys have really focused there. So I would choose a little bit of a hybrid approach. So I know all of our listeners want to hear more on all of that, but I'm going to back the clock up for a moment and then we'll get back to that conversation. So you grew up on Long Island and went to Ward Melville High School. Your father had his own business. Can you tell me a little bit of what you learned from watching your dad run his business? Sure. Let me first say that my father actually was an executive for an international bank for over 20 years before he took the entrepreneurial plunge and started his own business. And my dad was like God to me. I just wanted to be just like my father in every way. I was a tomboy, one of three daughters, the middle daughter. And when he started his own business, I was, I think, in 11th grade, and he wanted to get in home health care. So he bought a franchise in Queens, and he later bought another franchise in Westchester. And I actually graduated high school early in January of 84, and I went to work for him in Queens at the home health care called HealthForce. And what I really learned in watching him is that he didn't have a background in healthcare. He didn't really have a management team that was experienced. He levered up to buy the second franchise, and eventually, unfortunately, it was not successful. And as a result of that, I think what I learned is that I, you need to do a significant amount of due diligence, and you have to have experience management, and I am definitely fearful of leverage. Maybe too conservative, in fact, but fortunately, my husband, David, is a risk-on investor, and he, we balance each other out pretty good. So that's what I've learned. 
So you went to George Mason and you had a full-time job at what is now Ernst & Young and took your classes at night. First of all, that's a rigorous schedule for college. A, did you have any time to relax and enjoy being in college? And then second, did you ever seriously consider becoming an accountant? Because those of us who read your research on a consistent basis are very happy that you're not doing our tax returns today. <laughs> Well, thanks for that. Well, first I would say I started my college career actually when I was working full-time for my father at Baruch College in New York City. And after being there for two semesters, I actually met a guy from Virginia and fell in love. And despite everyone's telling me I was nuts, I decided to move to Virginia and live with my boyfriend, Ian. And I actually transferred quickly to a community college, Nova, out in Reston, Virginia. And we were together. And fortunately for me, My very best friend I met in London when my father was overseas for three years. My friend Yvette lived in Virginia and I met, I've known her since I'm 12. So I had friends there and I did have some fun, but it was like playing house. My, everyone used to tease me, but I did transfer eventually to George Mason while working at Arthur Young, now Ernst and Ernst and Young. It took me six years in total to finish school and, and some student debt. But when I worked at Arthur Young, I was like crazy ambitious. And I would ask all the accountants all the time, do you like your job? You know, I'm majoring in accounting because that's what my dad did. And they would be like, you don't want to be an accountant. You should, you know, you're crazy ambitious. You should go work on Wall Street. And I had no idea what Wall Street was. No one recruited, none of the firms recruited at George Mason. So I went to the library, I started networking, and it led me to investment banking at Solomon Brothers. So there couldn't have been many other George Mason graduates in your entry analyst class at Solomon Brothers, and you went into investment banking, not investment research. How'd that go? Well, I was one of 70 in a financial analyst program that's a two-year program, and I actually was one of three women. And I was very intimidated because I was one of the only ones that wasn't from the best of the schools out there, the Ivy League schools. But we were grunts. You know, we worked 80-plus, 100-hour weeks. You're building spreadsheets. You're going to the printer all night. You're working on pitches for your team. I was on the transportation team. You know, you'd be lucky if like we were doing a pitch to win business from Delta Airlines. I was on the transportation team. If even working all night, even if I got to go to the meeting to make the pitch, I would be quietly sitting in the room in the conference room and not a peep out of me and just being happy to attend. So given that I'm very much a people person, it just wasn't a good fit. And after two years, everybody goes to business school. That's sort of the the normal track. So I thought I needed an Ivy League MBA. And so I applied to Harvard, Stanford, and Northwestern. And unfortunately, very deflated, I was rejected from all three. So at that point, I had student loan debt. And I decided that I would just find a job to pay my rent and forget about the MBA. So I started looking internally, and for those of you who remember the big Solomon Brothers treasury scandal coming out of the 1991 recession, there was a lot of openings in various parts of the firm, and there was an opening in equity research as an associate. So I actually got the job, and everyone in investment banking told me I'd be crazy to go work in equity research because they're just monkeys, and they just write what managements tell them to write. So despite all those warnings, I wound up in equity research and started my now almost 30-year career being an equity analyst. So you went into equity research at Solomon Brothers and crushed it. And then you moved over to Credit Suisse and had an incredible run at Credit Suisse. Uh, The number of accolades that you got from institutional investor from the Wall Street Journal, you were at the top, 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 top on all of their rankings as it relates to 
research. Beyond just working exceptionally hard, what do you think differentiated you from other analysts on Wall Street? Well, Solomon Brothers actually took me out of the role as associate and gave me a chance to join the MBA program as a full analyst myself. And they assigned me an institutional salesperson as a buddy. And I had a year to learn my industry. And during that interaction with my buddy told me, whatever you do, don't rely on publicly traded management teams to tell you what's going on. You got to go dig in the channel and talk to private companies. So I started calling private companies. I'd go to trade shows. I'd meet any private companies I could, home builders, building products. And the good news was that my industries were really highly fragmented. So at the time, the home builders only had, the public companies only had 8% market share. So it was easy to build a Rolodex. And fast forward, that Rolodex today, which you're part of, is nearly a 1,000 companies that are C-suite executives that are participating in monthly surveys that we do. And it's funny just thinking about all of what we've done from the scratch pad, writing notes down. We have now an automated platform that we have surveys. We produce nine monthly and quarterly. And these surveys are really very extensive and detailed and highly correlated to the publicly traded companies that report quarterly at over 95% R squared. And these results allow for clients and industry executives that purchase the research to stay ahead of the curve. And really that's that's enabled us to actually make really bold calls and stick to our guns and helping the guys with the boots on the ground. And the other thing I was known for, and probably still, I'm a little bit more mature now, but I was quite bold and never afraid to ask tough questions and would get into it with management teams, sometimes on public conference calls. I I try not to do that anymore. I try to keep that offline, but not afraid to ask tough questions. Uh, that I've seen and that is highlighted a lot here. If you go on YouTube and look at Ivy on various video clips, you will hear her. Uh-oh, I don't know that. Class, know that. You'll hear CEOs being asked difficult questions. I now clearly understand why you don't really listen to what I say because I'm in that category of public company CEOs who don't tell you the real truth. But anyway, you and your husband and your colleague at Credit Suisse, Dennis McGill, jumped out to start Zellman in 2007. If I look back to your questions to leaders in the housing industry in 2006, you knew things were getting ugly. You knew that there was overbuilding. You knew that there was a mortgage crisis coming out. And in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, you're in there and you're cited by Michael. So you knew something was coming. I can't think that if you knew it was going to get as bad as it did get, that you kind of make the move to go out in 2007. And looking back at that, What made you and your husband and Dennis decide that at that moment was the time to strike out on your own and create your own firm? Well, as the housing bubble was brewing, and in 2005, we actually were early in calling the top and saying that this wasn't sustainable, we became the bomb. Everybody wanted us in every capacity at the bank. It was whether, you know, I was being paid by what home building stocks traded and every part of this, of Credit Suisse wanted access to Ivy's element and what our research was doing, capital markets, the asset back securization area, the, the fixed income. So we were really sought after. And while we were contrarian, I always make the analogy that we were the sober ones when everybody else was getting ripped at the party and getting wasted. We were definitely very much in hot in demand. And because we had this an unbelievable proprietary Rolodex, which now is exponentially bigger, 
bigger, we knew that we would can go on our own and really hang our own shingle and, and we're confident we could do well. But we did our due diligence. We built a 10-year model. We spent a lot of time, about a year and a half, planning and circling very quietly institutional investors and asking if they'd come and they'd use our services. And so we left the firm in May of 07. And it was with David, who was experienced and, and really more the business acumen that I felt confident that joining me and helping us get started, I can focus on the research. And at that time, I had no idea that the housing market would cause the great financial worldwide bust that it did. But I knew, Willie, frankly, if I if it didn't work out, I'd probably find a job. So it was I was willing to take a risk. I did, my husband and I did sell our home in Florida, which he still regrets, but we needed the capital to start it. And fortunately, we're still the only owner. So we've done well. So housing tanks in eight, nine, and 10. And then in 2011, you start to get bullish on housing again. And you start to come out and say, now's a really good time to get back into the housing space. And then in 2013, you follow that up basically saying from an investment standpoint, sort of the housing market is as good to Nirvana as an investor can find right now. Talk for a moment about, I mean, if we look back, hindsight's 2020 vision. And was that the time for people to be as bullish on housing as you said? Or, and when you say housing, let's segment for a moment between single family housing and multifamily housing, because that was sort of the advent of the great London multi. And we're going to run through the 2010 to 2020, and then we're going to talk about where we're going from here. But talk for a moment about 11 and 13 and what you saw then in the single family world that made you so bullish on housing vis-a-vis multifamily. Right. Well, in late 2011, inventories had really troughed at record high levels. And we started doing analysis that there were a tremendous amount of institutional investors, mom and pop investors, primary buyers that were in the market. If you look at Google searches for homes, it was a lot of indications. Rates were at record lows, that it was just a ripe time. So we called the bottom in January 2012, and housing started ripping. Starts were up for single family, 25%. Home prices were up double digits. And that continued into the first half of 2013. And I was on CNBC in March of 13. And I said, you know, this is Nirvana. And that was the end because within two months, Bernanke decided that they would stop doing quantitative easing. Rates spiked 100 basis points and housing stalled out all the way through the end of 13 and into 14. And then to make it worse, to pile on, FHA lowered their loan limit in the early part of 14. So housing really stalled out. And it wasn't until really 2015, 16 to pick back up. And with multifamily, frankly, we really, we, we missed it because we weren't bearish. We had some buy recommendations, but we just weren't anywhere near as bullish as we should have been. And we really underappreciated the hangover that millennials would have in terms of delaying marriage and family formation and the negative sentiment that people were afraid to invest in and buy because of what their parents went through. So we were definitely not bullish enough, clearly, on multifamily. I want to dive into that for two seconds. What makes you think that post-COVID, we don't get back to a similar type of pattern? Because we're going to talk in a moment about what's happened in the housing market over the summer and what's happened in this pandemic that has sort of made everyone's head spin around. But just going back to sort of your frame on 2011, 13, being bullish on housing, but that people were still having that hangover effect from the great financial crisis. Why do you think or not think that it's going to be either similar or dissimilar this time around? 
Well, I think right now there's no question that the demographics are extremely favorable during the great bust and really for the last 15, from starting in 2001 all the way to that, through 2014, the number of 35 to 44 year olds was actually declining. And that was a headwind that we really didn't fully appreciate when we early on in 2012 called the, the bottom. And in 2015, we started seeing growth. So the trough of the age cohort 35 to 44 was 40 million. And by the end of 2030, there'll be 48 million. So there's been a nice tailwind that has really been benefiting since 15, the single family asset class. Couple that with record low mortgage rates that obviously they can move higher and that would change the game. But rates are very, very low and they've dropped, you know, since they were record low in 2019, they're now at new record or they were in 2011, 12, they're record lows, but now they're at a new record low and they're down 85 basis points from where they were a year ago. But I think the real key underpinning is that the inventory in the United States is at an all-time record low and it's fallen another 25 to 30% since COVID. And so there's a lot of elements that, and, and we won't get into if you want, we can talk about it now, but the pandemic has created, a, 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 the housing has taken center stage as people are just stuck at home. So we can get more into it. But I, I think that the risk for the housing market is really around rates and the robust home price inflation we're seeing right now that could at some point negatively impact affordability. But, uh, but I think there's a lot of bullish underpinnings that can keep the market on a relative basis outperforming. As I've read through your research, you go back to the sort of 2010 to 2015 timeframe and all the things that you just pointed out as it relates to demographics, some real concerns about single family homeowners diving in, where rates went because of the what Bernanke did, made it so it was sort of a period of time where everything was going multi. And then you mentioned in 2016 that single family home builders kind of finally got the memo that they needed to start building entry level single family housing. And in your latest research report, there's a fantastic graph that shows that the average square footage of a single-family home being developed in the United States has gone from 2,630 square feet in 2015 down to 2,225 square feet in Q1 of 2020. And in that period of time, as the size of the footprint has come down, also the number of homes that are qualifying for an FHFA, FHA finance loan has gone from 43% in 2015 up to 68% in Q1 of 2020. All of that needs FHA financing, if you will, to meet that entry-level borrower's needs, FICO scores lower than what Fannie and Freddie are on. Should those people, I guess, be homeowners? I know that FHA will give them a loan, but we kind of saw in the 2000s what happened when the subprime really grew. What's your take on the financing to be able to meet that product? Because the home builders have clearly started to build it. Well, just to put some perspective around it, the purchase for FHA, FHA accounts for roughly 13% of purchase mortgages. For the home builders, probably 20%, even though they're obviously focused on entry level, that's growing. But I think what we recognize is that it's not a subprime loan. Certainly, the down payment is less at 3.5% for the 580 FICO score. If you look at 90-day delinquencies, the book has actually been performing very well. It's roughly at prior to COVID, I should say, in, in June of 19, 90-day delinquencies were almost near record lows at 1.9%. And when you think about, Willie, the way people create wealth over long periods of time, many create wealth only through their homes. My best friend in Utah, my friend Lisa, I've known since middle school, three kids, single mother, if she hadn't bought her home using an FHA loan, 
she now doesn't even have a mortgage. She's created a legacy for her children and her grandchildren. And she actually has been able at times to borrow against that home to fund things that she's needed. So I think there's a place for FHA. I do obviously think it's a higher risk from the perspective of having that down payment is so minimal. But at the same time, we're looking at inventories in the United States. So today, when we look at delinquencies, 90-day delinquencies with COVID, we're at 8% for FHA. And that's concerning, obviously, if people don't get jobs and the vaccination doesn't come to fruition and people wind up losing their homes, they could sell their home and probably wind up getting enough equity to not only pay the bank back, but actually even have some equity given the strength that we're seeing in home price appreciation right now. So just to give some perspective around it, I think there's a place for it, but we do monitor the credit box. And right now I'd say they're fully underwritten loans, not like we had in the boom, boom days. So, and, and clearly Fannie and Freddie have made, I mean, their certification on single family lending since the pandemic started has actually gone up to make it so that it's even harder to get a Fannie or Freddie loan at this point. Does credit availability, given that rates are driving so much of what's going on right now, does what FHA and FHFA do for Fannie and Freddie concern you at all as it relates to the single family market? Well, actually, we survey roughly 20% of the mortgage market, and we do every month. We look at the strength of underwriting on a scale of zero to 100, and 100 is you can't get a mortgage in zero. You can fog a mirror and get a mortgage. 50 is normal. And so right now, I'd say that we're at kind of in a 63 score. Back in early 2012, it was almost 80, and it really hasn't gone. It got close to 50, but with COVID, it's tightened. And one thing I didn't mention is the builders, actually, if you look at their average credit score for FHA borrowers, their average FICO score is about 700 to 720. So you have a much higher quality borrower that's coming in and buying that new home than over, overall in the, in the total market. The other point to make is that when you just think about FHA and the number of people that are borrowing today, what we're seeing is the lenders have so limited capacity. They're hiring like crazy. But because of refis or going gangbusters, they're actually tightening because they can, because they have more and more better quality applicants. They have more than they can service, which is one of the reasons why spreads are wider than normal. If you look at the 10-year treasury, which is hovering at 0.7, typically the 30-year fixed rate is roughly 170 basis points over the 10-year. And right now it's about 230, 40 over the 10-year. And that's just because they're so busy and they're so capacity constraints. So they're looking for even better credit than they had been. So let's dive into the crisis and then we'll get to where we are today and then we're going to look going forward. So the pandemic hits and the world seems to really turn upside down. Yet little more than a month after most investors and analysts had bet that things were going to get super ugly, green shoots started to sort of appear in many sectors, most specifically in housing. Your home building stock index was down 39% in the month of March, and then it turned around and jumped 31% in April, marking the group's strongest one-month gain since October 1982. You can sort of see things flipping quick for an Amazon or a Home Depot, but given that buying a home is the largest purchase that one makes in their lifetime, typically, what caused it to flip so quick? Well, when you think about the pandemic and people's focus on their their wellness and safety, the first thing that we saw was that people were leaving densely populated cities. They were fleeing for distance and space. And as people started in late April recognizing that they could be stuck in their homes and really not 
able to do the typical things they normally did, going out to dinner, going to concerts and sporting events. Everybody starts looking at the space they have and recognizing that it's either not good enough, it's not enough. When you think about at home, you've got kids working or doing student or learning online. You've got people working remotely. So they want home offices. They want bigger kitchens because you're dining at home more and they want more outdoor space. So these were the, these are really the initial things that we were hearing. And as you fast forward, so our proprietary surveys, interestingly, in April, we had a tale of two halves. The first half of April was down about 45, 50%. The second half was down about 20 to 25%. So we saw that inflection. And remember, our surveys, again, is about 15% of new home sales, over 95% correlated to the public's. So we wound up seeing in May up 33%, and in June and July up 60 and 61%. And these surveys are just remarkable strength. And if you remember prior to COVID, the housing market in January and February was for the first time single family actually hit a million starts. So it was like for the first time in the cycle, it's even stronger from the underlying fundamentals right now than it was back then. And it's gotten higher, 20% higher than pre-pandemic levels from at least from order activity. So people are nesting. Your home is your castle. And so they're really focused with rates at 3% and looking at what they can buy today. They can buy more home, but they're also not spending on all those other areas that the share of wallet is all being geared to being focused on their homes. So I want to talk about the sustainability of that. But before I do that, let's just stay on kind of these eye-popping numbers as it relates to sales. So sales of previously owned homes jumped 25% in July from June. That's the strongest monthly increase since 1968. 68% of homes sold in July while on the market for less than a month. And first-time buyers accounted for 34% of sales in July. But in the process of all that, Ivy, the median home price in America rose 8.5% from a year early to $304,100, which is a record high nominally. Isn't this appreciation putting the American dream further away from that entry-level home buyer because you're not getting enough inventory of new homes and the existing stock is inflating up so much that at some point, yeah, we've got a lot of people who have the money who've jumped into the market in the past two to three months. But at some point, as prices continue to inflate, the people who can actually put down that deposit and actually buy that entry level at home get smaller and smaller. Well, first, I would just clarify that 8.5% increase, that median home price, is actually reflective of mixed a benefit because the entry-level inventories are down over 60%. So it's just skewed to higher-priced homes. If you look at what's happening in the overall market and you look at like-for-like housing, Case-Shiller, CoreLogic, you're really looking at, call it about a 4.3% increase. We're actually, for full year 2020, we're forecasting 3% with an upward bias. But the builders are building affordable homes in the tertiary markets. We call it the exurbs. And that's one of the benefits of the builders because the inventories, again, at record tight levels, they're desperate. I remember back in 2015 being on a stage at industry conference saying, if you build it, they will come. And now they are. And they're building it as fast as they can, but it's not fast enough. So they are providing that affordable homes. You're just not seeing it in the existing home sales because it's at the new at the new home level, but the velocity you pointed out, the way we look at it, a home that's listed in the in the same month that it sold was at an all-time record velocity. So you might not see it in this in the numbers, but if it comes on the market and it's priced in the twos, 
it's gone multiple bids and there's bidding wars all across the market now in many markets, not just the entry level. So I do think there's affordability there. But to your point, if home prices keep going up, the only reason right now they're able to overcome that is because of where rates are. So rates solve a lot of problems right now with them being down so much. But at some point, if rates go up and home prices continue to go up, we will have more challenges related to affordability. You uh, give me your outlook on rates. What do you think is going to happen to rates over the next year? I'm not a rate guru, but I can tell you in this battered economy and not not the likelihood for 10% unemployment going down very soon, I'm not um, really seeing a lot of inflationary concerns other than lumber and some of the building materials that we're seeing going nuts. But without that, I'm guessing rates are going to stay pretty low. That's a good segue to housing starts. So housing starts sort of almost 23% in July from June. Can you help me unpack a little bit, Ivy, that that start number? Because first of all, is that number just single family? Is that single as well as multi as far as what's accounted for in that starts number? Can you answer that first? And then I'm going to go into some of your projections as it relates to what you're seeing from starts going forward. Sure. Actually, that's a combined number. So single family was actually only up 7%. Multifamily was the lion's share up 58%. Okay. So on that, then you have, as it relates to housing starts and your current projections on the single family starts, you have growth of 1% this year, 2% in 21 and 7% in 22, while you have multi-start shrinking 10% this year, 7% in 21 and 9% in 22. So Give me a little bit of the context of what you and your team are thinking is going to happen here, because that's a pretty dramatic shift from kind of all in single and moving out of multi. Well, multifamily has a multi-decade high backlog of nearly 700 units that are not yet completed. And in the multifamily market today, the demographics are actually more of a headwind than a tailwind. So we talked about the 35 to 44-year-olds. And I forgot to mention, by the way, the reason why that number is so important for single family is that our data shows that those aged between 30 to 39 that are married with two or more children, 82% live in a single family home. And I always like to get joke that, you know, if you're living in an apartment with 900 square feet and you're married, it's hard enough to stay married. Imagine adding a few kids. So people go and they find more space when they're married. And and that data really is what's the benefit of lifestyle decisions that push people to single family. On multifamily, 20 to 34-year-olds really from the period of 2001 through 2014 were on a massive upward trajectory, but the growth rate started decelerating. And between now and the end of 2030, we're going to see that decelerating growth rate continue. And by the end of the decade, it actually turns negative. So you'll go from 2020 call it 67 million, to the end of the decade, you'll be at 67 million. So you just don't have the same tailwind on the demographics. Secondly, when we look at the urban core, which the multi-decade high of supply is actually more concentrated in the urban core. That's where the wall of capital really chased significant development. And that's an area where we not only are seeing people flee, we're seeing the, the risk of remote work and what that will mean for the market, as well as soaring crime rates that are are really making people reconsider living in cities for today. I'm not saying longer term that won't necessarily change back when we get a vaccination, but I think right now multifamily is really feeling a perfect storm. You've got eviction moratoriums, you've got collection rates under pressure. So I think that the suburban markets, by the way, are really not at multi-decade highs. 
there is definitely a lot of supply coming more in the suburban class A than in class B. But I think that our view is that underwriting today and trying to develop needs to shrink so the market can get rebalanced to then resume growth. But when we see a 58% increase in starts, we're not, that's not good for multifamily. They need to work through that supply because as you know, Willie, when developers have a lot of capital and they're shovel ready, they're not going to turn back. They've got too much invested. So we know from surveying over one and a half multifamily um, developer operators, which again, you could buy our surveys, you'll see they're telling us they're not going to stop. They're moving forward. And so I think that supply, while it overall pressures lease rates, you know, it's a great asset class, but we feel like it's going to be problematic for the industry to see the ability to come through this thing in the next year or two and needs to shrink the new, the new starts. What we're seeing a lot on our end, Ivy, is buyers, not necessarily developers, because to your point, developers who have shovels in the ground, they're going to continue forward and complete their projects. But on the buy side, there are many people saying to us that at current cap rates and current interest rates, to make a buy that there might be some noise in the in the rent rolls over the next year or two, but that with the limited supply coming in in 22, 23, 24, that instead of having 650,000 units delivered in, in 23, like there will be delivered in 20, that they're going to have 300,000 units delivered. And therefore, that's going to allow them to have full properties and push rents. Do you buy that as it relates to an investment thesis right now on the multi-side? Let me just clarify. There won't be 675000 delivered in 20. That's what's in backlog. So what we're, we're expecting, and with the numbers recently going higher, I think that you need to work through that backlog to order in order to get the market position to suggest to their point that you'll have you know, more of a normalized level. So I think that the the, the pressure is not going to necessarily be gone by 22. It really depends on how quickly that backlog unwinds and how development, how much development actually comes to fruition. So our forecast for declining development, new starts, is actually a good thing to reposition the market to not be so overwhelmed with so much supply. So I'd probably be looking more like maybe three to five years rather than two to three years for a market to really resume and be at a healthy level. And don't forget about that headwind from deteriorating growth rates and seeing the number of young people with Generation Z. It's actually behind that uh, millennial generation. It's just not going to be growing and having the same magnitude that the millennials did for the industry. You mentioned the eviction moratorium being headwind for multi, both multi and single family loans that are backed by federal government have the ability to go into forbearance. The forbearance numbers on the single family side are dramatically higher than multi, which makes sense. You're getting sort of economies of scale, if you will, as it relates to a property that has two or three tenants or 10% of their tenant base not paying. You get one person not able to pay in their single family mortgage and that's coming in. But right now we're at about 8%, between 7 and 8% of Danny and Freddie's outstanding single family book in forbearance and less than 1% on the multi side. Does that elevated level of forbearance in the single family side cause you pause and, and make you wonder about what we're going to see from a foreclosure standpoint in single family housing? No, because I, like I said earlier, the inventories are so tight that if we had all those people that 8%, 7% were to wind up having to leave and vacate their homes, 
they could arguably sell those homes today if the scenario was still the same as it is right now and even maybe have more left over after they pay off the bank. So what worries me about the renters is that you have an, you know the opposite. There's no inventory. There's too much inventory. And so as we see today, rent collections are under pressure, but we're still in an environment where there's stimulus and whether the unemployment benefits are not as high or people are we're at risk. If that Band-Aid gets ripped off, it could be worse. And we might really start seeing a lot more vacancies. In New York City, as an example, vacancies are up, inventory, I should say, are up nearly 30%, which is like an all-time record increase. So there's a lot more supply risk that would then pressure more on lease rates. And we're seeing concessions are rising. So I think there's more of a protection. Because don't forget, forbearance for the consumer, they have up to 12 months assuming it's a Fannie Freddie FHA loan that they don't have to pay for up to 12 months. And even when they get to the 12 months, they can tack those missed payments onto the loan to extend the duration of the loan and not change their monthly payments. So I think the government is giving the the owners much greater support and the renters are really, unfortunately, not getting the same type of support that homeowners are getting. So you talked about core versus suburban. Let's talk about two sort of shifts that you talk about in your research. First, remote working, and the second, sort of blue state, red state. On the remote working side of things, clearly we're still in sort of the dispersed model today, and who knows when we're going to get back into offices. I have been a big believer and still am that culture and creativity happen in offices, and that the moment that Walker Nunlock can get back into offices, we will be back in our offices. But as of today, we've said no one has to be back in an office until January 1st, and we'll see where we are come then. But you're making some pretty strong assumptions that this remote working sticks around for quite some time. Talk for a moment about what you and your team are seeing and why you have such conviction that this remote work environment makes it so that people can live further and further out and that the, so the suburbs and even further out really grow as it relates to overall housing. Sure. So if you look at the data, Brookings Institution shows that as of 2017, roughly 5% of people worked remote. And recognizing that today, whether it's technology companies, mortgage companies, where it's a very competitive industry, people are offering their employees flexibility, giving them optionality if they want to come to work one or two days a week or even work permanently from home. It's allowing for the expectation that we go from 5%, whether we go to 10, 15, 20%, I don't know where the number is going to go, but we're going to have more people that have shown they could be productive. You know, I, for example, one of my buddies who lives in Chicago, his wife would never leave the city with the crime rate soaring there. They bought land in Austin and his employer is going to let him work from Austin. And not only is he moving there, but he's moving his in-laws and his parents, and they're going to, they bought land, and they're actually going to spend less on all of their land and what they build their homes at than they are spending in Chicago. So I think that you're going to see that it's not a, it's a sea change, but it's on the margin, the incremental growth that we're going to find that's going to really benefit the housing market, as opposed to thinking that everyone's going to be remote. And so that then goes into blue state, red state, because you're trend is moving from a blue state to a red state by moving from Illinois down to Texas. Tax rates, job growth, you go into quite some details. It relates to the fastest growing economies versus those that are really slowing down. 
talk for a moment about my first question to you was, where would you invest? And it, it didn't surprise me that behind Ohio, you went to Idaho. Not that tax rates in either Ohio or Idaho are the lowest in the country, and clearly they're not income tax free states like Florida and Texas, but they are. Clearly, Idaho is a high growth area right now in Boise, particularly. But talk a little bit about red state, blue state, and what you've seen happening over the next five years, particularly as we recover from this pandemic. Sure. So first, just to give you guys a little bit of data, if you look at 2010 to 2020 and its estimates, because the census has not finished uh, the the decennial survey for 2020, but so if you just look at the growth rate for population and household growth by state, the red states have been growing at double-digit rates in many parts of the country versus barely any growth in many blue states. So for example, Utah, Idaho, You've got Texas, Arizona, the Carolinas growing at double-digit rates compared to New York, Connecticut, Illinois, Pennsylvania, barely growing 2 to 3%. So we call it the great shuffle. This migration is not new. And we think about the Northeast, for example, and taxes now where you, if you own a home, you can't deduct more than $10,000. I mean, that's across the board for the nation, but just overall increases in taxes through SALT you're seeing that people are able to not only move to more affordable places, but that might have more favorable taxes and also nicer climates than, you know, the cold Northeast. So I think that right now with the migration that we're seeing, whether it's sustainable, we thought there would be some urgency pull forward because of school. You know, people are wanting to get in before school starts. Also, people were saying that, you know, it's likely that once school starts and winter comes, then housing might you know, start to temper and fade, which could be true, but a lot of people might want to get out of the Northeast and in the cold markets like Chicago and go to Florida or go to the Carolinas and markets like Nashville and Birmingham. And these markets are just flying there. The Southeast is the strongest in the country of all the regions, everywhere strong. And it's strong across all price points from the entry level all the way up to the move up. And interestingly, before the pandemic, we actually wrote, as you remember, Willie, the tale of two markets that the move up market was actually languishing. And that had a lot to do with people that just didn't want to move with a low rate that they were locked in at and upgrade to a, for a discretionary purpose, as well as the aging of the boomers. So mobility rate in the United States, if you go back and look at 1998 to 2002 on average was 14.9%. If you then fast forward to 2013 to 2018 on average, was 11.9%. So it's declined over that period, call it 400 basis points, 300 basis points. And you, what you're seeing is that it's a the aging boomer in place who tends to move less. If you're in my cohort between 50 to 54, 9% of people move versus those that are aged 20 to 24, 53% move. So we have these boomers, 75 million that are a much bigger cohort compared to the prior generation that increased 53% versus millennials, they increased 14%. So what the boomers do, believe it or not, are much more important than what even what the millennials do, and they were aging in place. But now we're seeing people again, because rates have fallen, that they want those discretionary purchases. So the move-up market in Greenwich, Connecticut, where you couldn't sell a mansion, brokers are having multiple bids on homes priced that have been sitting for years at three to $5 million. So those fleeing urban core markets like New York are really breathing life back into these suburbs that were dead for almost six feet under. 
So that's been a big part of what we're seeing. And the question is, how long will we see the growth rates that we're currently seeing in our surveys sustain while we're modeling that we actually right now are modeling that we do see expect it to fade and have more flattish outlook. We're going to be updating our forecast, which we do quarterly, because the market has definitely been much more favorable than we had been initially expecting. So everything you just said makes perfect sense as it relates to people wanting to move to the Southeast, people moving out of New York to go to Greenwich to buy the house and stop living in the high-end apartment downtown, what have you. But we do still have 14 million Americans unemployed. What's your thought as it relates to, you just said, the kind of a flattening of this growth curve as it relates to housing. How do we, I mean, that's more people that are unemployed than were unemployed during the great financial crisis. And it took fully three years for you to sort of get bullish on housing after we began the great financial crisis. So talk for a moment about, you know, we sort of in this euphoric moment where the American consumer has surprised us because we've gotten $3 trillion of stimulus payments out of the federal government. We've got basically free money going everywhere out of the federal government. We might have another stimulus payment coming now. Stock market is at an all-time high and, and, and we're kind of in this rebound What's your thought as it relates to sustainability of this? And then also kind of the, just how do you soak up 14 million people who are unemployed when airlines are unlikely to be flying anything close to what they were? Las Vegas is not going to be back to where it was. Marriott Hotels isn't going to be hiring the same number of people it was before. I mean, just, we can see Amazon and Target and others, you know, starting to employ many, many more people, but we've got whole sectors that are still sort of on their knees. So- how, how long does it take us to get through all this idea? Well, when you think about the number of people that are unemployed, which is tragic, and this, this whole thing is tragic, you think about the people that are employed. Your employment base is 160 million. So you've got a substantial number of people that are gainfully employed, are feeling confident, have the income. And remember, they've shifted their attention to their home. Their home is their castle. So they're not spending elsewhere. So I think that it's a question of, in this case, those that are employed are overwhelming those that are not that are unemployed. But if you go back historically, when a housing housing has been the majority of downturns, if you go back to the early 80s, was really the cause of our recessions, led us into recession, like in 8081 and then 9091, all of those recessions, including the Great Bus, was housing. We go back and look, look at the tech wreck which actually um, from call it late 99 through 2001, housing actually fared very well during that period because interest rates were falling. And even though unemployment never got close to what you're referring to, unemployment was rising and housing was outperforming and home prices actually over that time frame actually increased over six and a half percent. So is it possible that interest rates basically trump COVID and keep people in the market buying as we are dealing with this pandemic. And I think that there, this is a once in a lifetime experience, we hope that we never have to go through again. But while people are focused that are getting gainfully employed, I think their home is really, really all that matters to them right now. You mentioned your home is your castle. And we've seen record sales at Home Depot and Kohl's as people have been investing in their home. They've I was talking to a a pool builder here in Denver and I said, how's your business? And he said, look, it's off the charts. And I said, are you building new pools? Are you renovating old pools? And are you putting pools into places that there shouldn't be pools? And he jumped right on that last one and said to me, we are putting pools into backyards that never, ever should have a pool. It's like taking (laughs) up every single piece of ground. So when someone's gone and built their pool, built their deck, gone and bought the can of paint to redo their home, 
And they've also refinanced their home now at historically low interest rates. Is there a risk that all these single family builders are out building inventory and a year or two from now when all that inventory gets delivered, everyone says, I've just invested in my home. I've just refinanced my mortgage at a rate I'll never get again. And I can't port that rate with me. I'm not a buyer. Right. Well, I think your points, we first have to clarify that the new home market is less than 12% of the total market. So you're dealing with 88% of the market is resale and resales are at an all-time record low. So there has been such a deficit of new construction that's been plaguing the market because remember, the builders didn't get the memo to build affordable houses. They were scared that people wouldn't drive to qualify. So while the recovery has really began in 2012, the true entry level didn't really start in earnest till really three or four years ago. So I think there's still a large gap. We estimate it to be about 20 to 25% of what is needed based on the number of homes that have been completed versus the number of households that have actually been formed. And so I think that gap, as long as it's not even back to normal, I think the inventory is desperately needed for, from, what, from what we analyze. And I would also point out that as the builders continue to build, you know, they have an incredible opportunity to capture more share. The historic rate for new homes was 16% pre-housing bust of the financial crisis. So there's still a long way from gaining back enough share that would even put them at a normal level. So we really need that supply, Willie. And so as you think about the various home builders and their inventories, their entitled land, because land entitlement has been a real hindrance, if you will, since the great financial crisis, getting land entitled for single family development has been one of those big issues that developers have had to work through. It's my assumption that that's better today, but I would assume that dispersed work model where a lot of county courthouses are closed and things of that nature, trying to get new land entitled is causing some issues. If you'd answer that in the in this broader question, which is just who, as far as the home builders, is positioned really well to take advantage of this, given the type of inventory they're building? Because you've segmented the market nicely and you've talked about existing home sales, you've talked about new home sales, but who's, who's going to reap the rewards of this right now over the next year to two years? Well, the public builders represent 40% of the market. So I mentioned they were 8% when I started my career. Now they're 40%. And they really are a significant advantage to the small builder. You know, we survey builders that build anywhere from a few hundred homes to a few thousand homes. So scale really matters. We see it right now with whether they're trying to obtain lumber, forget about skyrocketing prices, even getting lumber. So the builders that actually are best positioned, you know, builders that have long land pipelines, that are professionally equipped to get land entitled. The biggest publics that we follow are really the ones like a Lennar or DR Horton thinking about Meritage. Meritage is one of the builders that back in 15 literally completely shifted to entry level. And we also have builders that are building not only for sale homes, but there are builders like Lennar and Horton that are now doing single family for rent, build to rent. And so that's actually an advantage that gives consumers more flexibility for those that don't have the ability to buy. So I think that the big builders are going to just keep getting bigger. And there's a long list. We have 11 companies that or more that we follow. So, uh, you know, they're between the ones that we like and the ones that we don't. I'd say right now, you know, you can't kiss all the boys, but we, we do like most of the builders. We actually just downgraded DR Horton, even though it's a great builder. And, and by the way, 
the builders, not only are they generating cash flow right now, but many of them have delevered substantially. So they are in way better position than they've ever been because they got so spooked by the great bust that I think that the, the industry has changed uh, tremendously for the better. But we downgraded it because it traded at 2.6 times book. And, you know, that was the peak multiple. And so we try to remain disciplined because we don't think it's necessarily different this time. We're not willing to say that. We still think there's cyclicality and there's risk with a battered economy. And if you tell me that, Ivy, the vaccines here, we're all back to normal. I think that those that wallet and that focus on the home would shift back to what we normally spend our money on. So I think housing could still be good, but maybe not as strong as it is right now. And you started by saying single family rental, that that's if you had your million dollars and you put it into an asset class right now, SFR would be where you put it. So just talking about the SFR owner operators, who do you like as it relates to SFR today? Well, we only have two publicly traded companies, Invitation Homes and American Home for Rent. Uh, the difference between the two is that American Home for Rent is developing their own lots and taking on a little bit more risk to provide a built-to-rent product. Invitation Homes buys, you know, here and there, 10 to 15 brand new homes, um, but it's not a big percent of their strategy or not a big, big percent of their portfolio, nor is it part of their strategy. But there's a lot of institutional private companies that we interact with. So, you know, it's interesting because most of the institutional companies have really, or the institutional capital has gone to the smile states gone to where the population growth is the greatest. And there are now portfolios out there that are pretty sizable, eight to 10,000 type sizable portfolios that are still privately held that are more focused on the Midwest. And that's what I'm like, oh my God, finally, somebody is taking advantage of these unbelievable double digit unlevered yields. So I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for the business to continue to be institutionalized, we actually wrote a report back in the early days, leasing the American dream. We did another one called the new old thing. And more recently, history repeated, where we talked about the parallels between when the multifamily market was still in the late 90s, 97. It was not, it was a mom and pop business. It was fragmented. It wasn't yet institutionalized. And how the single family rental market, which is, you know, really very, very small institutional capital today in terms of the few hundred units versus or few hundred thousand units, 200, 300,000 versus 15 million. And the amazing parallels that we see for this opportunity for scale and really giving the consumer a much better experience, 24 hour, seven days a week call centers, the service better, um, more CapEx in these homes. So that's one of the reasons I like Cleveland because there's no good product. It's a, it's a horrible experience for the consumer here if they want to rent. Is the play on SFR today to build it or is it to buy and, and if you will, convert it? Because as you mentioned previously, only 14% of the market is new inventory. The 86% that has not been that heavily invested in other than now where everyone's putting new cans of paint on all that stuff is the play right now and it's all replacement cost. Has the cost of existing inventory inflated so much that you can't go and buy and make the SFR model work so you've got to build new? Or is it the opposite and, and, and you, you can actually go out, buy, convert, and, and, and hit that market today? I think it's both. I think the returns are attractive for both. It's just, you know, if you're taking, if you actually retain the collateral as opposed to sell it and just operate and be and man and have a and you are a manager of the of the operations it's just taking more risk because you have to retain the collateral when you're building as opposed to just going in i mean i mean if you think about the operations versus owning i think both provide developing and resale good attractive returns 
the new development piece just is more risk because you have to develop the land and not every builder and um, a build to rent strategy is doing that. They might be buying directly from builders, but the returns we're told are even higher for build to rent than for the single family rental market in general. But that really depends on the market. You know, if you go to look at HPA in Phoenix right now, I'm sure that the significant increase in, in home prices there would make the single family rental strategy there less attractive on a yield basis versus build to rent. But if you go into, again, a market in the Midwest, it might be much more attractive to actually buy it versus build it. And so then finally on multi, what do you, what strategy do you like? Because I don't think your coverage universe has many multi and the big multi REITs are out there and people know that there's EQR and Avalon Bay and others. But what do you see from a strategy on multi right now that plays out well over the next couple of years? Well, um, post-pandemic and really uh, thinking about where we we need better quality and just a, a level of stock that is more attractive is workforce housing. I think that is the area that is most attractive and the least sought after by institutional capital. So I think that has been uh, performing despite the pandemic. It's actually been performing very well. And so looking at class C, class B, because class A right now, I think is just got way too much pending supply. And I think that you are seeing, again, those people that are aging into single family assets are going to be able to afford to buy. And there's going to be a lot of people in workforce housing that just will never be able to come up with the down payment and live paycheck to paycheck. All super insightful and helpful. I would uh, reiterate two things. One, to any of you listening, if you want to go to the Zellman website and look for their research, I would strongly recommend that. Any of you who have not attended Ivy's housing conference, uh, you can look for information on her website for that as well. It is a absolutely fantastic gathering of many, many of the leading voices in the housing industry on an annual basis. And hopefully we can get back to doing that in-person Ivy rather than remote as well doing it today. And the final thing is, thank you very much for taking the time. I did notice in my research for you that you have three kids and they all, they're all their names start with Z. So they are double Zs and there's a double W. I would just say, I love the, uh, the ZZs. And at some point I hope to meet all three of them. So thank you for joining me today, Ivy. And so thanks much. everyone on the webcast. We'll see you again next week uh, with Eric Yang of Zoom. Thanks. Thank you. Take care.